0: You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 17 through 24 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, I encourage you to pull out the notes provided for you in your bulletin. All of the notes, quotes, and references and fill in the blanks uh, will be there. And you can use that to follow along with the sermon and better retain the message. Um, And then I also want to encourage you, if you're watching from home or if you're here Uh, And you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the U Version Bible app. That's Y O U Version. Uh, Once you download it, you can go to the More Tab Tap Events, Find Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Uh, Just click on today's uh, date and sermon title, and all the same uh, notes, quotes, and references will be there for you as well. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. And I'm excited to preach to you a sermon I've entitled, Privilege. Privilege. A little over a week ago, my dad went for a checkup at a new doctor's office. The doctor reviewed um, our family history and dad's medications and wanted to check dad's heart using an EKG. An EKG screens the strength and timing of the electrical pulses of your heart and whether your heart beats in rhythm, whether it's steady or irregular. And after dad went through that EKG, it was just simply inconclusive. Next, the, the doctor prescribed a stress test. During a stress test, the doctor records the heart's activity under different levels of physical activity and pressure. And after dad took that, the stress test was just inconclusive. So next, dad underwent a heart calcium scan, this heart imaging. Think of it like a specialized X-ray of your heart that can help doctors determine whether you have plaque buildup in your heart. And it, too, was inconclusive. At that point, my dad, they had told my dad, either you're absolutely clear, you're absolutely blocked up. That's what we're seeing. And then dad had a heart cath. This all was in the span of a couple of days. A procedure to go inside and diagnose the heart's vessels, and Dad had five blockages. Throughout it all, Dad felt no ill symptoms, nothing. After the EKG, the stress test, the heart scan, and the heart cath, Dad wasn't any better. It wasn't any better. What's the point of doing all those if you're not going to get better? Today, we're in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. The apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. And if you don't know anything about Paul, Paul was a Jewish Pharisee and a persecutor of the Christian church. Only after the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and commissioned him to be his apostle... Paul came to faith and became the greatest Christian missionary. Jesus commissioned Paul specifically as an apostle to preach the gospel or the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles, non-Jews. Now, it's important for you to note that the Roman church was comprised of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. And Paul wrote the letter of Romans to introduce himself to the Roman church. He had not yet visited them. And he wanted to alert them about his visit to pass through there and go on a missionary journey to Spain. And Paul seizes the opportunity to rehearse the gospel for this Roman church. And he especially focuses on the gospel's relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Note this in Romans 2.11, Paul has made the statement because everything has been flowing out of this statement. There is no favoritism with God. Now, why would they think this Roman church have to be told God plays fair, that He's not unfair? And it comes down to this the Gentiles or the non Jews did not have the Bible's Old Testament Mosaic law. And I shared this with you last week or a couple of weeks ago. Think of it like the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the Ten Commandments, they didn't know, so to speak, right from wrong or what God expects. Of them. And so they thought God must surely exempt us from his judgment and wrath. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago that, in fact, non Jews or Gentiles or people without the Bible, they're not exempt because God has written his law on their heart through their conscience. That when we violate our conscience, we are violating God's law. And now Paul is turning to address the Jews, those who have the Ten Commandments, those who have this special covenant relationship with God. And here's what they're tempted to think. Because God gave us His Word, because we have this special relationship, we must be exempt from God's judgment and wrath too. And Paul's going to say, oh no. The question then is, what is the point of privilege what's the point of having the privileges of god's word what's the point of having a covenant relationship with god's word uh, with god if it doesn't exempt you from the wrath of god and paul's going to explain that what is the point of privilege let's look at romans chapter 2 verse 17 now if you call yourself a Jew, and he's all these you's except for the last you are all in the singular. He's, he's wanting to talk to people specifically. Okay? So if you yourself call yourself a Jew, rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a God for the blind... "...a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law." Now, just pause right there. He has just listed in in a roundabout way all the privileges the Jews have with their special relationship with God, their covenant with God. And here's what I want you to write down, and I'll have to unpack it more as we go through um, our time together. But what is the point of privilege? The very first thing I just want you to see, and I'll have to explain it from the text, but it's this. It is not rest. It is not rest. They are, these privileges are not intended for you to rest in them or recline or rely on them in order to exempt you from God's judgment and wrath. Paul is singling out the Jews because of their special status as God's chosen people, that the one true living God has a special regard for this nation. God had given them the Old Testament Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, or think the Ten Commandments, and they took pride in themselves in having this revelation, the Law of God. And They took pride and boasted in their God. There's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But here's where it becomes destructive. They begin to rest in that. They begin to recline in that and say, Well, because of those privileges, surely God will not judge us. Jesus addressed this certain belief this type of resting, this false confidence in John chapter 5, verse 45. And he says this, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. Now this is really interesting. He says, don't think that when judgment day comes, I'm going to step up and accuse you of all the faults and evils you've done. Listen to what he says. And this would have, this would have been uh, penetrating to the heart, to the Jew. He says this, he says, Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now catch what he's saying. You have set your hope on having this Mosaic law, and you think that by virtue of possessing it, you'll be exempt. He says on that day, guess who's going to get up and tell you your faults? Moses. You understand that it would have just made them shiver. (laughs) Well, we don't want Moses to accuse us. He says, that's going to be the very person who judges you. Right? The prophets in the Old Testament addressed it this way. Listen to what Micah says in Micah 3.11. Her, he's talking about uh, uh, the Jews. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment. And her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord. They rest on the Lord saying... Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. You see what they thought? Because we have this special relationship, we can do whatever we want. And we'll be exempt from God's judgment. And Paul is paralleling those same arguments here in Romans chapter 2 verses 17 through 20. Now, some of you are sitting here saying, well, I'm not a Jew. But can I put this into our vernacular and how we apply these same, this same type of false confidence, this false rest to ourselves today. We'll say this, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Now I'm not saying that's a bad thing. okay? But let me explain, let me talk about what we mean by the words. You may call yourself a born again Christian. You're saying that you're right with God and, if, you, and if, if it's based on these things, I'm telling you, you have a false confidence, a false rest. Because you simply prayed a prayer. Because you signed a tear-off panel. Or you walked down an aisle. I want you to understand, those actions in and of themselves are not salvific. There are no reason for you to rest in them as the assurance that you will be exempt from God's judgment. Some sit there and say, I have a godly heritage. My family is stacked with ministers. Generally, when somebody finds out that I'm a pastor, no matter where I'm at, the conversation always goes back to a grandma or a grandpa that ministered to the Lord. And they find rest in that. Somehow, my family is a godly family. You've been to church all your life. You have a Bible. You honor it as the Word of God. You sometimes read it. You'll even carry it To church. You've been baptized. You're a church member. You take communion. You give to the church. You've served the church for years. You know the right answer to a large array of biblical questions. You've even led people to commit their life to Christ. You'll point out this country's in a terrible state. Our political leaders lie to us. Nobody wants to work. Crime, gambling, and other vices are increasing. You'll say to me, Preach it, Pastor. Preach it. And none of these things are reasons to rest. They are all false confidences if you're trusting in any of those things, whether it's one or all of them, to exempt you from God's judgment, I'm here to tell you, you've missed the point of privilege. That's not why the Bible has been given to you. That's not why any of these ordinances have been given to you. Baptism, communion, church membership. That's not the purpose of those privileges. So what is the purpose? What is the point? Of privilege, Let's look at verse 21. You then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law do you dishonor God by breaking the law For as it is written the name of God is blasphemed slandered abused among the gentiles the non-Jews because of y'all because of y'all So what's the point of privilege you ready number 2 it is responsibility The point of privilege is responsibility. Paul undermines any sense of superiority by emphasizing that if you have an advantage or a privilege, it just makes you more culpable before God. Some of you, like the best thing with gentleness and respect, if you're not going to repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior, stop availing yourself to these privileges. You're just damning yourself more and more. You sit under the word of God preached, you have a Bible in your home, you have a church within you know, a throwing distance, and yet you refuse Christ, ooh, the point of these privileges is that you're responsible for them. They're means to get your attention, not for you to exalt in yourself and have confidence. Confidence. James R. Edwards, he explains what Paul probably was theologically riffing off of when he just picks out these few commands. Because he doesn't go through all the Ten Commandments. He just picks a handful of them. And this list is meant to be illustrative, not exhaustive. Here's some of the things that was going on in the background behind the text in the world of the Roman church that they knew about. Now listen to this, and I'm not, please understand, I'm not picking on the Jews here. Because Paul's point is none of us are any better. Okay, that's the point. But listen to this. The point is that they had as the, the possessors of the Mosaic law just as many lawbreakers as the Gentiles. That's Paul's point. You break the law just like the Gentiles break the law. Even among pious Jews to cause the most complacent Jew, he would have shifted uneasy in his seat when this letter was read. Because they knew, he, they knew what Paul was talking about. Here's some of the things that happened. The rabbis, these are the teachers of Judaism, themselves told stories of a man who lost his cloak. So there's a Jewish man who lost his cloak. He goes to a judge to get help in recovering. And guess what? He finds the cloak laying over the judge's bench. The judge had stole it from him. This is a man of the law. The rabbis told story of a rabbi's wife. Now, this is the teacher's wife, the preacher's wife, who caught her husband in adultery by disguising herself as another woman. They were aware of these stories. The rabbis uh, told uh, told stories of another rabbi who taught against lending money at interest and against stealing and then was later convicted of both. The rabbis told of such double standards. These are things that's heard. Robbing a Gentile is forbidden, but if one finds a Gentile's property, he can keep it. Right? These are all saying, Paul's just trying to say, we do the same things they do. And vice versa. The most well-known incident, and most people think this is what Paul has in mind here, is the Jewish historian Josephus recorded, in, recorded that in AD 19, some four decades before Paul wrote Rome, uh, to the Roman church that the Jewish community there in Rome had been scandalized by four of its members, one who led and professed to be a teacher of the Jewish faith to interested Gentiles. And these four guys persuaded a very wealthy Roman lady named Fulvia to make a generous gift to the Jerusalem temple and then they appropriated it to their own uses. In retaliation, the emperor uh, Tiberius expelled all the Jews from Rome. It's a known incident. His point was going, you're no better. We've got those same kinds of stories. And so Paul puts a nice little bow on this and he quotes this last verse. He quotes an Old Testament passage and it's from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It's from Isaiah 52. of The Gentiles blaspheme, they slander, abuse God's name because of Israel's suffering in Isaiah. Now here's what's important. Let me catch this. In the book of Isaiah, the people of Israel had come under the discipline of the God of Israel, Yahweh. And Yahweh disciplines them and forces them into exile into a foreign nation, Babylon. Well, here's what was happening. And and for those who know their Old Testament, they understand this, that nations are represented, represented by gods. And when the Babylonians overtook the nation of Israel, they're sitting there saying, our God trumps the God of Israel. We've overtaken the nation of Israel. And what they don't realize is that God had sovereignly allowed His people to go into exile due to their disobedience. And so God says, in, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, He says, for the sake of my name, I'll deliver you from your enemies. I'll send you back home because I'm tired of the nations blaspheming you because, blaspheming me because of your suffering and stupidity. I'll fix it. The issue that's even more daunting here is that these people, they're not, they're not causing blasphemy among the Gentiles because of suffering. They're causing blasphemy among non-Jews because of their own sin. Because the way they live their law. Here's what I want us to think about. When we share, whether that's in conversation or we teach from a lectern or a pulpit, do we listen to the truth that we are saying? Do we teach ourselves or is it just a lot easier to point out everybody else's faults? What right do we have to tell others how to live if we refuse to live this way? According to the Bible, in Romans two sixteen, remember this: We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God will judge the secrets of men. What's in our minds, in our hearts, what no one else knows about you? God knows. God sees what is in our hearts. Jesus taught us that the commandments also have to do with the faults in our minds and the affections of our hearts and not just external actions. Jesus deepens and radicalizes the commandments in the way we're supposed to see them. The issue is not about whether you forced yourself into another person's home and walked off with his possessions. That's what we think of theft or stealing. But here's what Jesus would include in all these things. We steal from an employer when we do not give the best of which we're capable of. Or we still, when we overextend our coffee breaks or leave work early, that's a part of theft. We steal if we waste products, company products, or company time for our own personal matters. We steal if we sell something for more than it's worth. We steal from our employees if we do not pay them enough to guarantee healthy, adequate standard of living. We steal when we borrow something and we don't return it. We steal when we cheat on tests and taxes. That's all theft. You don't have to go break into somebody's home in order to do it. And the fact is this all of us in here, with gentleness and respect, I'm here to tell you, we are all thieves. All of us are. And the issue is not going to be did you sleep with another person's spouse? Jesus takes it much deeper in a radicalized view. Have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you fantasized? Have you viewed pornographic material? Because Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter. And it's so hard for people to realize. But yeah, you say, how can somebody do that? You all, including myself, we all have it in us. We're all murderers, adulterers, and thieves. That's what the Bible is trying to point out. We just lack opportunity. We were in a forge meeting the other night, and one of our guys said, "Then there's a thin line between us and death row. And that's actually really good theology. It's a thin line. And then to think about this, think of this as the church for just a minute we as a group are either a living advertisement for God or a keep clear sign. Keep clear. We bear the name of God and that is a sacred trust. And it's an amazing thing. I, I try to say this on Wednesday nights when we talk about bearing the name of God. Like, Just imagine for a minute, you're God's kid, so to speak, and he lets you put on a jersey with his name on the back. That's an awesome privilege. But understand... That's like when my dad goes, you're a tailor, right? Don't, show, don't bring shame onto the family. The same thing with God. You, you bear my name, right? You're my child, right? Yes. Don't bring shame on the name. And yet we violate that trust when we don't live responsibly with our lives. When we live in sin it dishonors God. It discourages other believers. And it gives unbelievers ammunition to slander, abuse, and misrepresent God's name. Living in sin provides the cynic and the skeptic with reason not to take the glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ seriously. Can I say something? This, is gonna, this may hurt some of you, but I need you to see it biblically. And I know, and I've said this, we all want to be able to hear that if we go through a season and when things are rough and tough and we go through what we like to call a season of backsliding, and I know it's possible, biblically it's possible. We still have sinful natures. But I think backsliding is a gentle way of, of, of saying what the real truth is this, is it's a form of blasphemy. That's what we don't want to, we don't want to call it. Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not where I need to be. I'm, I'm backsliding. No, you're causing others to blaspheme God. So I don't say that with, with any arrogance. I've had times in my life, and I say backsliding because I just want a little bit more mercy and grace. But let's just be honest, Josh. When you're living in sin like that, you're causing other people to not take your God seriously. That's what it is. And we've all, my point is this, we've all done that. So what is the point of privilege. You would say then, man, why why have all these things? If it just makes us more responsible and just heaps up condemnation on us. Write this down. This is the whole point, and this is the most glorious point. It's what we failed to do. The point of privilege is heart surgery. The point of privilege is heart surgery. My dad didn't take an EKG, a stress test, a heart scan, or a heart cath to feel better. I know that. It was to expose the condition of what? His heart. That's all they were for, to expose the condition of the heart. When you have five blockages, by the way, there is no amount of lifestyle change, diet, or exercise that you can do to renew your heart. It's done. And here's what I need you to understand. All those privileges that I've expressed, the Bible, going to church, having a godly heritage, all those those privileges, they were meant not for you to to rest in them and have a false confidence. They were meant to expose the condition of your heart. You're supposed to be going through all those and you go, I am a miserable, wicked offender. And if you come to that conclusion... You've used those things rightly. They were tests. They were tests to expose your horrible condition. That's the point. There is no religious lifestyle, devotion, or work that you can do to ever change your sinful heart. None of us can do that. What do we have to do? And this is what it comes down to my dad. <laughs> i never forget having this conversation. You have to accept the inevitability of surgery. That I can't do anything else about my condition. The best thing I can do is rest and what? Put my life into someone else's hands. And that's precisely the gospel call. We're sitting there to show you all these privileges to go. We've not used them responsibly at all. In fact, it just shows that we have wicked hearts. We shouldn't rest in anything. The best thing we could do is go to sleep and let an expert work on us. That's the point of these privileges. To get us to heart surgery. Put yourself in someone else's hands. You and I are dead in sin. We need a resurrection. And I know a great physician. I know a great physician. And he don't just work on the heart. He gives you a brand new heart. Isn't that amazing? That's the point of all these privileges. Ultimately to get you to surrender and rest in one person and one person alone. Jesus Christ. That's it. That's why we're here to make much of Jesus. There's nothing else we've got. Have you been trusting in your religious practices to exempt you from God's judgment? Have you been trusting in your knowledge of the Bible, your generosity, your Christian upbringing, your baptism or your church membership? Again, these are all good things, but they're not salvific. They cannot save you. Genuine repentance. When we use the word repentance, what do we mean by this? And John Owen talks about it. He says, I like how he says it, that we are convinced thoroughly that we're not righteous. That's what repentance means, is to come to the absolute utter realization, I am not good and I have nothing to offer God. Nothing. I'm a dead man. And if you realize that, I mean, not with the English, but, but no, 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 like nothing. I've got nothing. You're, you're on your way. You've accepted the inevitable. And the next part is to turn to Jesus and put your life in His hands. And what we're saying is this, is the work of Jesus is meritorious. Jesus lived a perfect life, shed His blood and died on the cross to erase all your sin, to give you a new heart, and then His resurrection proves He can give you eternal life. He can do for you what you could never do for yourself. And he's alive and well. He's God. Here's our thoughts and whispers that we can call upon him today. And he can start his work. Isn't that awesome? Our response has to be the psalmist response in Psalm 18, 1 through 2. I love what the psalmist says. He says, I love you, Lord, my strength. Notice he calls him my strength. There is no health in us. There is no strength in us. The Lord is our strength. And then he goes on, he says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's our God. We, if you're looking at anything else for refuge or to be your rock, it will all fail. The Lord is our strength. He is our salvation. Him alone. That's the only person we can rest in. James Montgomery Boyce, a great preacher, he put it this way. He says, there is something even more terrible and that is for these persons, and he's talking about the Jews and all of us, to continue along this wrong path of taking privileges and resting in them and not seeing them that they're supposed to cause us to turn to Jesus. Supposing that they are on the best standings with God just because they are religious, when actually they are like the utter pagans around them on a swift journey to destruction. If you have been trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and His death on the cross in your place, throw whatever it is completely out of your mind, abandon it, stomp on it, grind it down, and then turn to Jesus Christ alone and trust Him only. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Church, I, even for the believer today, I find so much joy in this message because it's a good reminder that it's, our salvation is not based on anything we have done. And that's a great thing. <laughs> there's, there's confidence and assurance in that, that it's all based upon God's Son. And He has done it for us. That's an awesome thing. But here's what I have to acknowledge. You may not be a believer today. You may have not come to that place of genuine repentance where you go, I am thoroughly not righteous. I'm a sinner. And that if you die today, you know, you now realize you will not be exempt from God's judgment. You will be the recipient of God's wrath. But you've come to that place where you go, I'm not going to rest in anything else. I'm just going to go to sleep, so to speak, and put my life in Jesus' hands. And you're going to trust Jesus to save you, to be your strength and your stronghold. You can call out to Him. It's literally the idea of calling out for rescue. I'm going to call out to Jesus to rescue me. And He'll do that now. He's God. He hears our thoughts and whispers. And I want to teach you to pray in a way in which you can confess your sin and commit your life to Christ. Will you repeat this after me? You say, Dear Jesus, I confess, I admit, I am a sinner. I am not right at all. And I deserve your judgment and wrath. But, I believe you love me. You came down for me. You lived a perfect life. And you died on the cross for all my sin. And I believe you're raised from the dead. Please forgive me. Give me a new heart. And grant me eternal life with you. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is where these privileges kick in. Notice this. All those other things don't matter. But when you've called upon Jesus, the next thing that we talk about in our walk, in our faith, is baptism. And baptism is where we go public with this very private confession and commitment you just made. That in baptism, when we go under the water, we're showing the church and the world that we have identified with the death of our sins in Jesus, in His, in His crucifixion and burial. And then when we come up out of the water, we identify and say, we believe that Jesus has forgiven us of all of our sin and given us a new heart and given us a new life. And what I want to encourage you to do, I'm calling everyone to repentance, faith in Christ alone, and then to be baptized. Go public. Don't be ashamed of Him. He bled and died for you, right? We can be buried and raised in baptism. If you've never been baptized, fill out that tear-off tear off panel, check baptism, text BELIEVE to our text in church number 706-525-5351 or go to our website and click baptism and fill out the form. Just give us a chance. All we're doing, you're not signing up, give me a chance to talk to you about that next step. The last thing that I want us to do as Christians, again, I've, I've been just thinking about more of writing out prayers to help you reflect during this time. see, and uh, Ms. Barb, y'all can begin to play. I want to read this prayer over you and encourage you to pray something like it. I hope it expresses the desire of your heart in response to this message. But it just says this, Holy God, I have sinned against you. Please take away my sin. I cannot count on anything I have done to bring me peace with you. You will judge me according to your law. I repent of my sin and rest in your appointed way of mercy, Jesus Christ. Honor the holiness of your great name, which we have caused to be blasphemed among unbelievers. May they know you are the Lord. Demonstrate your holiness through us in their sight, in Jesus' name. Will you pray that? in this time of reflection. Heavenly Father Lord as this song reminds us just to only trust you God Lord we thank you that when we were at our worst you sent your absolute best your one and only son and Lord we thank you for the wonderful privileges these graces dear God to introduce us to you to bring us to that point of heartbreak heart surgery to lay our lives completely in your hands and Lord Lord just our sinful nature we we want to take those things and use them as false assurances and confidences and means to righteousness and we understand that that's not their purpose but that they point out the truth but we have erred we have done wrong we have not obeyed perfectly or completely and we thank you that you could have looked at all of us in justice and said you get what you deserve and, and send us all to hell. You could have done that. And yet in your great mercy. Just because of who you are. You made a way of mercy for us. Jesus. And not just forgiveness. But you've granted us new life. Spiritual transformation. Prayer. A relationship with you. Beginning now and through eternity. You've, you've went above and beyond. Uh, in your love and grace toward us. And Lord, I pray that every person today would would be able to rest in Jesus. To just trust only in Jesus and know that is completely sufficient. Completely sufficient for salvation. And because of that, in joy and love, we can go on obeying the law. But out of a posture of love and joy. We thank you, Jesus. For what you've done for us, may we always herald your name. And Lord, may we not bring disrepute upon your name where it's blasphemed. But may others take you seriously because we take holiness seriously. We thank you, Jesus, for this hour. We ask that you bless us. You're so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. I just want to encourage you to do a couple of things for me. if you. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.